Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. John 19 is where we're going to read from. And I asked Olivia to read this morning. She's a member of our ministry team here and a part of our vocational staff. And so it's important for me uh, that you know who she is. So John 19. All right. John 19, 17 to 27. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called Hebrew, uh, in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. You know, in our story, <clears throat> there are many who had gathered that day to see this man, Jesus, hanging on a cross. And the majority of them were very well aware, were, were not sympathetic at all. Some reviled him, while others, it tells us, they taunted him, saying things like, if you're really the son of God, then come down from there. It tells us the chief priest is present, mocking Jesus. The scribes and elders, they show up and they scoff and yell, he saved others, but himself he cannot save. Even the Roman soldiers, as we just read, they're regarding him as already dead and begin to cast lots for his clothing. They're gambling for his personal belongings there in front of him. However, not everyone that was there on that day was counted as an enemy. John's gospel just introduced us to at least four individuals who would have been counted as friends, and one of them is Jesus' own mother, whom he addresses. You see, we're in a summer series called The Crux, where we're talking about the crux, the crucial, the central thing of the whole Christian message is the cross itself, and we're slowing down to look at the seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross, and this is the third one in this moment. And it's something that Jesus will make, a statement he makes to his own mother. And when you think about Mary, just take a moment, you, you begin to remember that really she's had it pretty rough right from the beginning. She's told when an angel visits her as, as just a young virgin that she's blessed and highly favored amongst women. And yet she would live with the stigma and reputation of being a woman who was pregnant and unable to identify the child's father. Her only defense, when people would look at her with raised eyebrow and say, come again, who's the father? Her only defense was that she was the only person in world history that miraculously conceived without the involvement of any man, and that she knew this to be true because an angel showed up and told it to her. Like, that's a tough sales pitch in a little village that probably didn't go over very well for her. Remember, even once Jesus has arrived... She would take him, as was the custom, into the city of Jerusalem to be taken to the temple itself where he'd be dedicated and given back to the Lord because children, like we just prayed a moment ago, much like any other resource we have, is something we are to steward. And so he, she would take Jesus as just an infant there towards the temple, but she'd be interrupted on her way by a man named Simeon who was a bit of a prophet who God had spoken to and told him, you will live to see. When salvation arrives, 
And as he takes Jesus in his arm, his heart leaps within him and he begins to prophesy over Jesus about the salvation he will bring. But then the tone of that moment changes dramatically as he turns and looks at Mary. And you might remember what he says. He said, a sword will pierce your heart because of this child. Those prophetic words would loom like a dark cloud over Mary as she raised and watched Jesus, her firstborn, her oldest son, grow. I mean, I wonder, I really do, if if those words were something that she'd find ringing in her ears as she'd hear and see Jesus out as a young boy just running around playing and laughing and giggling, that she'd hear it again, but a sword will pierce your heart because of this child. Like, what would the extent of it be, she wondered? Or what will happen to him that will leave me with my own soul crushed in the process? What will happen to him that that will do such a deep wound, cause, make such a deep wound in me? As she watched her son grow, no doubt she wondered often, and when will this happen? When will the piercing of my own heart arrive? Mary'd feel a, a little hint of it. I think throughout Jesus' life in different moments. A little hint of that future pain many times throughout Jesus' life in ministry. Like when Jesus, just as a boy, disappeared from the family reunion as they all moved and made their way towards Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And for three agonizing, panic-stricken days, they couldn't find their young son. And when they found him, he was in the temple. And you remember what he said? He said, don't you know I must be about my father's business? I'm sure a part of what Jesus said deeply stung a mother's heart who had been so very concerned about him. It's Jesus' first miracle where Jesus and his family are at a wedding in their community and and Mary comes and says, Jesus, I have something for you to do. They've run out of wine. And you remember that Jesus says, well, woman, what, what business does that have to do with me? What's your concern have to do with me? My orders come from above. I'm sure in that moment, just a a little prick of that pain began to be felt by her. It's when she was so very excited that Jesus would teach his first sermon in their hometown of Nazareth as a guest speaker in the synagogue. But you remember what Jesus would say to those who had gathered all the family friends that Mary had undoubtedly invited to come and cram inside that little synagogue in Nazareth. He would say, you're hard-hearted, you're inhospitable, you're faithless and a perverse people. And as he left, people were probably not very happy with Jesus. And for Mary, I'm sure a part of her heart again felt the sting that one day she'd feel in totality there in that moment. It's the moment where his mother and his brothers come. It says that they're seeking to pull him away from the crowds and to put him away quietly. They seemingly are starting to believe the rumor that Jesus has lost his mind. And you remember how Jesus responds to that moment when they say, hey, your mother and brothers are outside. He says, oh, but who are my mother and my brothers? These, the ones who follow me, the ones who believe in me. This is my family here. I'm sure she felt it in that moment. But now the moment that Simeon had prophetically given while holding Jesus as just a baby boy has finally arrived, and it's no longer a gray cloud that Mary's under. She finds herself instead underneath the shadow of the cross itself. You know, when someone you love suffers, the depth of your love for them becomes the measure of your pain with them. In other words, the greater that you love a person, the deeper you'll feel their agony, their pain with them. This moment doesn't merely present a a good mother who would stand up at the base of the cross and who would gladly say that she'd rather suffer herself than watch her child suffer, like any parent would say. But any parent of a child who suffered will tell you that when a child suffers physical pain in their body, that their parents endure the same kind of pain, the same level of pain, but they endure it in their heart. And here is Mary being pierced and crushed in her heart, just as the prophet had said, a sword will pierce your heart because of this child. Mary's heart in the moment is undoubtedly breaking more than ever before. Her heart begins to melt as she collapses to her knees at the foot of the cross. She's alone with none of his other siblings there. No family beside her. The rest of the family doesn't even believe the claims of Jesus. The rest of the family seemingly are too embarrassed even to be seen with him in this moment. But don't miss the weight, the gravity of the situation. Don't overlook the weight of the moment. This is a mother, a mommy. 
watching her innocent son, her baby, bleed to death, all the while while being mocked and ridiculed. John's gospel says that when Mary arrives here, when we're introduced to her there at the scene, it says that she stood by the cross. And maybe we are to picture Mary coming and standing, trying to hold it together. Or maybe initially she came and stood until she was so overcome with grief that she melted to her knees. The Greek word that's used here for stood, it means to be fixed or set. It communicates a determination not to leave, to stay where you're at. It doesn't just communicate that she stood in her place, but that she was determined to stay there. It's a word that's used even in describing a kingdom or a family who faced great opposition, but stood in the face of that opposition intact, even though an enemy was present trying to topple them and destroy them. It communicates something to you that Mary stood by her son, even in the darkest of hours when everyone else was turning away. She did not stand there as a co-redeemer, as some might suggest, but in showing her support, she was there as a demonstration of her desire to defend Jesus and his innocence. It was telling the crowd around them that their bond remained intact, that it's still a son and it's still his mom. And she's determined in that moment not to leave him. She's fixed, John says, beside him. And yet she's overcome by grief. Her baby, her boy, he's innocent, and now she's watching, he's dying. Jesus' view was of this really inhospitable crowd. Every direction he looked, that's all that he would see. Until he saw a little robed figure in the distance. Their head covering as they made their way through the hostile scene. He, he's unable to recognize the face underneath the head covering, but he recognized the woman long before she lifted her eyes his direction, causing that head covering to fall and slip backwards because he knew that graceful walk of the tender figure that now stood before him. He knew that it was his mom. You know, crosses were not elevated out of reach. They weren't lifted high. In fact, when it talks about he was taken to the place Golgotha, if you go to Israel and they take you to a place that looks like it's a stone, like a uh, cleft in the rock that looks like the face of a skull there, they would not have placed him atop it, but at the base of it, of that hill, where a major trade route went by, where a busy street was there, so that people could look the person in the eye. It wasn't that he was lifted up on a hill above anyone. But they position you at eye level to add to your torture so that you were so close to touching the ground, you could almost reach and experience relief. It was just out of reach, though. It was just another form of torment where you could just barely but not enough experience relief of touching the ground. And then adding to that torment would be the fact that people could mock and ridicule you and spit in your face while you're just elevated inches off of the ground. It tells you that Jesus then would be positioned low enough that Mary could have reached out to touch him, but was unable to help him. She's close enough in this moment to hear him whisper, to hear his request, and yet unable to hold his hand, a hand she was so accustomed to holding that's now been pierced. Unable to kiss his head, because now a, thorn, a crown of thorns has been beaten into place unable to caress his cheeks because his beard has been pulled out. It's a mama unable to rest her hand on his back because what the Roman flagellum, the whip, had done to his back left it unable to be consoled. This moment pierced Mary's heart and undoubtedly caused a crushing pain even to reach into Jesus' soul himself to see his mother present in that moment. I mean, what must have Jesus felt when his eyes first locked with Mary's as she made her way to the cross? What would have gone on in his mind? Well, it tells you that Jesus responds to the moment and says, Woman, behold your son. Remember, lifting himself up so that he can get the words out. And son, as he looks towards John, behold your mother. Now, some, not all, not even the majority of commentators, they suggest that what Jesus is saying here to Mary when, she, when he says, behold your son, is that he's asking Mary, look Mary at me. 
Don't look past me or below me or beyond me. No, look at me. Look directly at what the sons of men are doing to the Son of God. But as I read this story, I don't necessarily see it that way. You see, at some point in the story at the cross, the scene is set for us that describes for us that Jesus' disciple and friend John arrives and he too stood by Jesus, determined to be there, and that Jesus looks down that direction towards John and towards Mary and then says, Mary, behold your son and son, behold your mother. I think pointing Mary's attention towards John and pointing John's attention back towards Mary. Now, listen, please, even if Jesus is addressing Mary and saying, hey, look at me, look at this son giving his life as a ransom for many and and not necessarily Jesus saying, look to John, the point of the moment is still the same regardless. The point of Jesus' comment is that he looks to John to look after his mother. That's the comment, right? To look to John to look after his mother. It's really not surprising, is it? That even in his hour of greatest suffering and sorrow, Jesus is in this moment thinking of others. Thinking of the sorrow that that Mary is facing, the vulnerability this leaves her in. I mean, Mary could echo the words of the prophet Jeremiah as recorded in Lamentations chapter 1 verse 12, where the prophet Jeremiah, he wrote, he said, All ye that pass by the way, attend, look and see if there be any sorrow like my sorrow. Mary could reiterate those words and say, look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow in this moment. Can I tell you, as I prepped for this and and studied this and pondered it all week, I thought of some of you specifically who I knew could also echo those words because you've been through the horrendous tragedy even of losing your own children, that you could echo these words because you've suffered a deep loss. All you who pass by, can't you stop and look and see, does anyone have a sorrow like I've tasted of sorrow. The story isn't merely about Mary's sorrow or about some of yours. It's a father, it's our God, who understands this pain too. It's a savior even, the son, who is aware of it, sensing and feeling it in this moment. And still Jesus, in the hour of his suffering, he's attentive to another sorrow. As one author put it, in the midst of accomplishing mankind's redemption, the son did not forget to provide for his his mother's future years on the earth. Which kind of leaves us with the first point of application, that you and I are never too busy to call mom or to check in on her or to look after dad. Because even in a moment like this, that's where Jesus' mind is at. You see, from Jesus' statement, we learn two different things here. We learn both about how Jesus viewed his earthly family, but we also get an insight into how God views the church, how Jesus' past tense viewed his earthly family, but we're also seeing heaven's view of the church itself as a family. In fact, if you think about when it's Jesus' view of his earthly family, To the Jews, the culture he grew up in, family was an incredibly huge deal, an important thing. It was more than just important, family communicated responsibility. The care of their family was the family's responsibility. In fact, the Bible teaches that who a child becomes depends primarily upon their parents, where in Scripture it says, train up a child in the way that they should go, and they will not depart from it. It's not a promise, but it is a principle. You know, God obviously takes raising a family very seriously because we remember what Jesus said about children. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It's not just the responsibility of parents to children, though. Think about it. It's the responsibility also of a child to their parents, the care of their parents that is equally important to God. In fact, the command that comes in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 20, the commandments, the ten of them, where one of them is to honor your father and mother, does not merely apply to young children. This is significant for all children and was a cultural piece in, in not just a Jewish mind, but it should be a cultural piece, even a Judeo-Christian mind like mine. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, it even says, but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That would apply to me as a parent needing to care for my family, my children, but it also could apply to me as a son who needs to care for my aging parents as well. 
which maybe means that what our parents said was true when they told us years ago, and it terrified most of us, that they would change our diapers, but that one day, the day would come when we would return the favor. For Mary, as a woman in the culture of the day, it'd be very difficult for her to provide for her own needs. Most scholars would agree that the absence of Joseph in Jesus' adult life and ministry and his story is meant to leave the reader with the understanding that Joseph is gone, probably dead even. This would then leave Jesus as, as the one responsible, the oldest son, the one responsible for Mary's care and future provision. So hear me say, then Jesus gave the request, not because of Mary's strength in this moment, but because of her sorrow and vulnerability. He's not making Mary the mother of all who will follow him. Mary, look at your son. And by implication, all future sons, that any follower of Jesus is now a a son or a daughter of Mary. He's not saying that. He's not making her the mother of all who will follow him. He is giving Mary a son who will look after her and care for her because she's vulnerable in this moment. And it's beautiful because it says that John took her into his own home from this day forward, cared for her as his own mother. You know, before we move on real quick, I I do think that this exchange that's happening here between Jesus and John has a very fitting cultural relevance to our current cultural moment. Think about this. Let me explain. A part of the kickback right now within our culture is that the overturning this week of Roe versus Wade is fueled by, here's the kickback, the opinion by many is that this is fueled by a religious patriarchal power play. This is a move to keep men in power and keep women in suppression. And that that backwards and suppressive mentality has a Christian worldview that's behind it and to blame for it. That's the current cultural pushback on what's happening. But please hear me, Christianity is not the historical cause of the suppression of women. It's not the historical cause of power-hungry, misogynistic men. Now, please hear me. Some of those misogynistic voices, yes, have emerged out of broken churches and have shown themselves to be very broken individuals. But that voice does not exist because someone is taking the gospel too seriously. It exists because someone is not taking the gospel seriously enough. Think this through. You see, the Bible's clear that women are image bearers, that God makes both male and female both in the image of God he creates them, that we are made of the same substance. In fact, when it says that God fashioned Adam out of the dust of the earth and then breathes life into him, when he fashions Eve out of Adam, it does not make a 1A and a 1B. It's saying in a beautiful poetic manner that Eve is made of the same substance, that there is equality between a man and a woman, that they're made of the same substance. Even poetically, it's so beautiful that God doesn't take a bone from his head so that his wife would rule over him, nor a bone from his foot so that he would walk all over her like a doormat, but a a bone from his side, a rib, under his arm close to his heart. It's speaking of of the role and of the function of a husband and wife, of mutual love and respect that should be there present. This is the biblical picture from Genesis itself. In fact, then you follow throughout the Old Testament and women uniquely display distinct aspects of the nature of God Twice in the Old Testament, God chooses to use a mother's love as the best illustration and comparison and example of his own divine love and tenderness for creation and his children. God could not find a better example of it, and so he used the image of a mother's love. In Isaiah 49, he says it this way, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? It's a rhetorical question. Know that a woman can't just forget about her nursing child. There's no way that that could happen. Surely, maybe they forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Isaiah 66, he uses it again. He says, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. God uses imagery of the of of what we would classify as femininity and motherhood, saying this is a beautiful picture, the best example of the kind of heart and care I have for you. In fact, in the Old Testament, one of the ways God's revealing himself is he gives himself the name and the title of El Shaddai, 
A shad in Hebrew is a breast. So the, the name is, is literally translated as the breasted one. And it has nothing to do with anatomy. God's not telling you that this is how I look if you see me. It's God promising nurturing care like that of a mother. And that's beautiful. See, the God of the Bible loves and elevates women. He even uses their nurturing and patient love as the best picture and portrait of how he feels about and is committed to us. Yes, some misogynistic voices, they've undoubtedly emerged from broken churches, but that voice does not exist because they took the gospel or the Bible too seriously. It's because they didn't take it seriously enough. You see, throughout the ages and cultures where the seed of the gospel is planted and cultivated, the byproduct is that women are liberated and elevated. And this is still true and clear as you look across the globe today. The places where women are most suppressed are places that still remain closed to the gospel. Places like India, where Hinduism reigns supreme and a caste system is still in play. Or your mind probably goes already to the terrible reality so many women face in Islamic countries like Syria or Pakistan or a Taliban-run Afghanistan. These are places that are closed to the gospel, and because of that, there's still power systems that are suppressing women to horrendous levels. But throughout his life and story for Jesus, and all throughout the, church, the church's history, Jesus has liberated and elevated women. Now, here's the challenge for us. Let's be sure that we follow then Jesus' example. Let's be sure that the same would be said of us as his followers. That where we go, that we elevate and liberate women. You see, from Jesus' statement, I think we learn both about how Jesus viewed his family and how God views the church. You see, the statement from the cross by Jesus is not merely about being nice to your mom. It's about a new family that's coming into being because of the cross itself. You see, in this moment, Jesus is causing a new relationship between John and his mother to come into existence that did not exist before. John and Mary, they are undoubtedly two real individuals who are physically present in that moment where Jesus is addressing a very real need between them. But John and Mary are simultaneously symbols and examples. They're types and pictures of the new family that Jesus established on the cross, where our connection is deeper than blood. It's the Spirit of God, the Father we share. In fact, some commentators, they point out that as Jesus, there on the cross, when they came to see if he was already dead, when they pierced his side, that what came out was blood and water. And some commentators will tell you the amazing imagery there is that it's birthing fluid that emerges. Because the cross was not just about his death. The cross was about a new life and the birth of a new family. You see, what Jesus did for me on a cross means that I belong with him, but it also means I belong with you because he brought us into his family. As I've mentioned many times here often, we were saved, yes, from sin, but simultaneously when we chose to follow Jesus and repent of our sin, we weren't just saved from sin, we were saved into something. We were saved into a family. Don't miss the beautiful gift of that. In fact, I really appreciated what author Fleming Rutledge wrote about this. Here's how she said it. She said, when the Christian community is working the way it's supposed to, people are brought together who have absolutely nothing in common, who may have diametrically different views on things, who may even actively dislike each other. The Christian community, God's new family, when it is not grieving the Holy Spirit, comes into being without regard to differences because personal likes and dislikes have nothing to do with the body of Christ. Then quoting from Galatians, I'll finish her quote. She said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. You see, from Jesus' statement, we're learning something here about both how Jesus viewed his physical family and wanting to care for Mary, but simultaneously also we're getting a glimpse at how God views the church, the new family that Jesus is birthing and establishing in this moment. So here's how we wrap up is I'm just going to give you four simple points of application if you're taking notes that are worth writing down about that family that we are then brought into as we choose to follow Jesus. The first thing that's true about that family is that what you do for others is requested because he can no longer do it himself. The first thing is this, that what you do for others is requested because he can no longer do it himself. Think of this moment, this picture, where Jesus makes this request to John, John, I need you to look after, to care for my own mother. 
It doesn't, it's not rocket science, to, rocket science to figure out why Jesus is asking this. It's because Jesus knows that soon he will not be here physically to place an arm around his mother to lift her up or provide her with a meal, that Jesus will be off the scene because Jesus is dying. He's passing from this world into the next. But consider the other facets of the gospel narratives, like I mentioned, that Joseph is not seen on the pages of Scripture, that we assume that he's gone, and that, that although he had other brothers, they did not believe in him, or at least who he claimed to be, and, and nor seemingly does Jesus feel very confident, it seems, in their willingness to support Mary. So as the oldest son, it's his responsibility to care for his mom, and in Jewish culture, there's no real way for her to be gainfully employed and care for herself. So Jesus turns to someone he trusts, and says, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. Think about it really simply this way. John has the privilege here of doing for Jesus what Jesus could no longer do for himself. John had the, the holy high honor and privilege of doing for Jesus what Jesus could no longer do for himself. I think that's heavy and huge. But then think about us. The Bible teaches us if you're a follower of Jesus, you're now part of God's family. You are co-heirs with Christ, having been adopted by the Father. That's the language that's used, that you're now sons and daughters of God. Jesus illustrates this in another moment in story from his own life that I referenced earlier, where in Matthew chapter 12 and also in Mark's gospel, it's recorded where his own family comes, Mary and her, his brothers, and say, you know, we need to speak to Jesus. And his response was, who are my mother and my brothers? These are my mother and brothers. Obedience is thicker than blood. The person who obeys my heavenly father's will is my brother, my sister, and mother. You see, now as a part of God's spiritual family, I think he's trusting you to do. What in a sense we could say, much like in this moment with John, what he can no longer do for himself, he's entrusting you with the care of his family. Now think about this. What that means is that the truth is there's never a day in which you cannot do something for him by doing something for someone he loves. That there's never a day in which you cannot do something for Jesus by doing something for someone that he loves. Okay, take a moment, just look around here. Like actually, like turn your head side to side. I think the statement echoes to us to tell us that he's entrusting you with their care. That he's entrusting us with each other's care. I think that's heavy and huge. Beyond just your family at home, your church family here, and all other believers, your extended family, that, that we're to look at them differently because God is entrusting their care to us. In fact, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says it this way, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You know, before I move on, let me share one thing uh, that I learned while reading a book by Henry Nouwen. Nouwen was a brilliant professor of theology at Yale and Har uh, Yale's School of Divinity Divinity and then Harvard School of Divinity before resigning from those prestigious roles to go live out his life in obscurity, taking care of severely handicapped adults inside a home that basically functioned as a caregiver. But he wrote something that just really has stuck with me about the word generosity. The word itself is sculpted in a pretty peculiar manner because the definition of gen, the designation, it travels to us in English from Greek and Latin like so much of our language does. The Latin genos or genus, and then the Greek genos, I should say. But it refers to us, those Greek and Latin terms refer to us as being of the same kind. And the English then picks up on that in saying generation. The gen is we are of the same kind. We're in the same era, generation, a gender. The distinction of gender is that they are of the same kind. It's a grouping of the same. Listen then, generosity. Generosity. Now one would write that true generosity is acting on the truth, not the feeling, that those I am asked to forgive and care for are kinfolk and belong to my family. Generosity, therefore, creates the family it believes in. Generosity, therefore, creates the family it believes in. You see, what you do for others, it's requested because he can no longer do it for himself. 
The second thing I'll just throw out for you to chew on is that what you do for others is proof. What you do for others is proof for them. You know, those who are present in the crowd that day had accused Jesus of many things. And one of the things they accused him of was that he was only concerned for himself, that he was all about self-promotion, that you're trying to lead a rebellion, saying that you're a king. He's claiming that she should be our leader. In fact, it would be plastered above his head on the sign, the list of his crime, the king of the Jews. But think about it. It must have silenced their accusations The one that they said, you're only concerned for yourself and self-promotion. You're trying to make yourself our leader. You're forcing us. It must have silenced those accusations when he humbly looked out from across towards an angry crowd to ask a trusted friend to lovingly care for his mother. It must have left them feeling foolish, maybe even a bit embarrassed that they treat a man so cruelly and yet hear in his tone and see in his eyes and know with great certainty of his great compassion and care for people. In fact, we know how at least one individual reacted to this scene because Luke 23 records it for us in verse 47, saying it this way. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. One of the shocking things the centurion observed at the cross was Jesus' love and care for others. That in his hour of greatest trial and pain, that Jesus was found thinking of others. It began with his first statement from the cross, a prayer from his enemies, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But then it was followed up with not a prayer, but a promise to a a repentant, although undeserving rebel, where he'd look his direction and say, and today you will be with me in paradise. And now he speaks up with a petition, a request for his own family, a humble request to a trusted friend to care for his mother. You know, things are no different for us. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you'd love one another as I have loved you that you'd also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Your care, your concern, the kind of love that we have for one another is proof to the outside world that you are his and belong to him, that you come from him, are saved by him. They get to see him in your life. I love how Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica when he wrote to them. He, he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, You've become examples in all of Macedonia and Achaia to all who believe. The word example is the, the Greek word tupos. It's a stamp. It means a scar or to bear resemblance. It's actually used in John 20. You might remember the story where after the crucifixion and Jesus is risen from the dead, Thomas was doubting and he said, If only I could touch the tupos. Only I could place my hand there. Doubting Thomas said, I will believe if only I can touch and see something tangible that would give me proof that this is real, that Jesus is truly alive in the flesh. Jesus would provide that two posts, that imprint, the proof that it was in fact all very real there in that upper room for Thomas. Paul would say of the New Testament church that your love is what provides the experience and proof that people need, the two posts, they can reach out and touch something that proves that all of this is real. It's your love, one for another. Isn't that beautiful? As convincing as those scars were for Thomas, your life and your love can convince others that Jesus is real and really who he says he is. Let me give you an example of this. This week, I made my first hospital visit in two years, thanks to a COVID era. Um, But unfortunately, I was visiting someone, a man from our church who's in ICU again, with continued complications from his own bout with COVID. Now, I don't mention any of this, like the hospital visit, as a humble brag uh, that, hey, look at me, I visited someone in the hospital. It's, It's actually the story that this man told to me regarding you, the church here, the family, that I'd like to brag about. You see, it I wasn't the first visitor that he had there in the hospital. I wasn't even the second one. Neither was I the one who saved his life, but by continually checking in on him and when his health crashed, being there to guide him to make sure he got the help that he needed. I wasn't in that role. Congregants 
parishioners, family members here filled those spaces. And when I sat with him this week, he told me that the hospital staff, their response to seeing the kind of care that he received and knowing his story, even how he got to the hospital, that someone else had basically flagged the situation for him, and then seeing he had visitors and all, they, they said at one point to him, and here's how he said it, he said, they came to me and they said, you have these one in a million neighbors, don't you? To which he responded and said, no, they aren't my neighbors, they're my family. Because we share the same father. That's beautiful. That's something the world doesn't know how to file. You know what's beautiful is this is the reputation of this church and has been long since before I got here. This has been who you are in identity. That you've cared for, uh, for one another so well over the years. That you've looked at widows and widowers and you've loved them because they're your family and you believe that God has entrusted them to you. You've cared for your sick so well that last week the person who read our passage to you paused beforehand to thank you personally for the way that you had reached out and cared for him and his family. As needs have come up, whether local or for brothers and sisters who are halfway around the world, you've given with generosity. You've expressed and made it manifest the reality that was already there. That's what generosity is. That we're family and we're in this together. There is a well-earned, God-honoring reputation and testimony that echoes from this church into our surrounding community. And that, that testimony is that we love one another because we're family. To which I say, then, don't stop. Don't stop. In fact, have our love be something that's known right now while the world is watching. Because I would humbly say, I, I think that our neighbors, our city, our country will be watching us as followers of Jesus in the coming months especially because they're looking to see if we were only anti-choice and anti-abortion or they're looking to see if we're really pro-life. Because if for me personally, if I'm really pro-life, then we are creating an even greater need for support and care for vulnerable mother and children, and that should matter to us. You see, our concern as followers of Jesus is, is not that we have political complacency that begins to settle in right now, but rather that there's a personal sense of complacency because my focus cannot be on what we have to fight against and then some of us just moving on to the next thing and celebrating a moral victory today. No, I need to keep in view what we have to keep fighting for, and that's broken families in need of help. So our question then is, well, then how can I, how can we help the local crisis pregnancy center? Because I would assume that in the state of California, there'll be more visceral responses to them and their presence here locally than ever before. How can I, how can we help them, the mom who is unprepared and ill-equipped with practical needs that will be piling up if she makes a decision to keep her child? Or how do we help a child, maybe even in the foster system, who needs a mentor, a friend, a father, an education, and maybe even an opportunity in the future? How do we step in and fill those spaces so that our reputation can echo even more, even into more homes around our community of people who stood up and got involved? You know, I saw it posted several times this week, and unfortunately, I do think it's true that the easiest group to advocate for Although there's a cultural pushback on it, the easiest group, least costly group to advocate for is the unborn. The reason people say that is because they're not asking for anything. We're asking for them to give them life. But they're not at an age where we're advocating for a group of people who need to be clothed or housed or fed, who need an education or a father figure or a mother figure in their life, who need a mentor or a friend. We are advocating for those things, though, if we're pro-life. We have to be. We have to be willing to step into those spaces. You see, in our story, I think that we're reminded that what we do for others is requested because he's no longer doing it himself. He's now doing it through us. But what we do for others, it creates proof for the outside world that looked in, even in that moment, as a man looked towards Jesus' direction and said, surely this was a righteous man. Real quickly, what you do for others, you're doing not just for him, but you're doing it to him. 
It's true that he's trusting you to do what he can't do for himself. He's entrusting you with the care of his family. But the Bible doesn't just tell you you're a part of a family. It also says you're a part of a body. And like a human body with many different parts, each different, each important, each working to function together, each responding to the instructions that come down from the head in the imagery, that's Jesus himself. This is how we are to function. I mean, think about it this way. If if I were to stomp on your foot and your hands got involved, I wouldn't be surprised. And I wouldn't say, well, I only did something to your foot. Why are your hands involved? Well, because you're one body. And if I hurt one part of your body, your whole body suffers with it. And think about this in Acts chapter 9. It's when Jesus has an encounter that he stages with Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes known as Paul. And when he does, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But Jesus is in heaven Saul can't hurt him or harm him or attack him personally, but he's attacking his body. He's attacking his church. You see, treatment of believers badly is something he takes seriously because he takes it personally. But the opposite is also true, that you treating others well is something more than just that's noticed by him. You're not just doing it to them, you're doing it to him. See, this is the last thought. And if that's true, that what you do for others, you're not just doing for him, but you're actually doing it to him, that he experiences it, then what you do for others, this is the last thing, you'll be rewarded for by him. Jesus himself talked about this. He talked about in eternity when all of humanity will be divided and those who enter heaven will be rewarded. He even tells us why they'll be rewarded. Here's how he said it. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in or naked and clothed you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. The least of these. The least in influence, the least in rank, the least in important. In other words, do something for someone who cannot do anything in return for you. It means what you do for your spouse that may go overlooked, you're doing to him, you're serving him, and you'll be rewarded. What you do for those freeloading tenants that live in your home, we call them children might feel like a thankless job, but you're doing it for him and you'll be rewarded for it. The clothing and shelter you provide. I mean, even what I'm saying about I believe we need to step into some of these spaces, I'm not giving a political push saying, so our government needs to step in. No, the people of God, we should love people enough to meet their physical, tangible needs. This is not a political bent at all. I'm talking about us as the people of God. Shouldn't we engage with people the way Jesus did, even meeting their practical needs? Because when we do it for them, we're doing it even unto him giving of your time in kids' ministry or in a local partnership with tutoring, you're serving him, you'll be rewarded for it. It's the email you send out this week to maybe one of our missionaries or, or a church partnership that we have where you're encouraging them, letting them know that you're praying for them, even the local crisis pregnancy center, that you're doing it unto him, you'll be rewarded by him. It's the text that you write to a person this week who you know is overwhelmed and struggling. It's not just received on their phone, it's received by him, it blesses him too and you'll be rewarded for it. You see, all these th things are not just done for him. Scripture teaches us they're done to him because we are a body. And he promises that we'll be rewarded by him, regardless of how little or insignificant those things may seem. In fact, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 10, whoever gives to one of these little ones, smallest in rank or influence, even just a cup of cold water because he's my disciple, surely I declare to you, he shall not lose his reward. My friends, of all people, we should be the most caring because we are the most cared for. Look at the cross and what it proves about the care of God for us. You know, just because I'm here in a church or because I'm a pastor, it, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean I'm living how God would want me to live or doing the things God would want me to do or much less sharing in God's heart for people. But you need to know, because I'm a believer in Jesus, and because many of you are too, because you are his beloved disciple, that he says to you what he said to John today, that son, here's your mother. That he says, I'm trusting you to care for them. 
that he looks our direction. Yes, he'll continue to do the work of meeting needs, but now he's going to do it through loving channels. That's you and I. Jesus always loved incarnationally. God would take on human flesh to come and and let us experience his love. God continues to love incarnationally and that his spirit lives inside of me. I put flesh back on him so that people around me who are saying, God, where are you and who are you? Get to see a bit of what he's like and how he feels about them and the way that you and I embody him and treat them. That we are mobile carriers of the spirit of God. That he's trusting you to do what he can no longer do for himself. He's entrusting you with the care of his family. That is a beautiful gift that we together are a part of that family. So Jesus, I stop just to thank you that you have brought us into a family. And what that means for us, that we can belong. That we come here knowing that we're safe and that we're loved. For all of us, broken, flawed, yet forgiven and loved. Jesus, we thank you that we share the same Father. We don't just have good neighbors. We have a family here. Jesus, thank you that you made that possible. Jesus, thank you that you went to a cross to demonstrate the kind of love that you have for us. And then you gave a promise even before going to that cross that it would be better for us if you went away because you would send your Holy Spirit here to reside in us. And so today I am praying, Father, please send your Spirit to move and to work through our lives to answer people's requests, to answer their empty prayer at night, to answer their hopeless moment, to meet their needs that they have. Jesus, send us as ministers of reconciliation. Jesus, use our lives, we pray. Jesus, what a gift this family is. Jesus, I pray for people who are in our church but haven't yet really experienced the gift of what it's like to be a part of the family, to feel connected. Jesus, I pray that that would begin to change today. That they wouldn't leave here discouraged because they're yet to taste this, but that they'd be determined to start loving others here like family and that they would be the recipients of that kind of love and care too. Jesus, we pray for those in our church who are sick and needing help and and for those who have been served by the family in these last couple of weeks. We pray for strength for their bodies, peace in their hearts, and joy in this moment. Jesus, thank you that this is the family that we are a part of, the family of God, bigger than what happens in these four walls, spread all throughout the earth. Jesus, your people, one large family that are here to bring and spread your glory, your kingdom, everywhere that we go. So Jesus, use us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.